1: you don't know if the thing's going to be any good you're in the I don't know it's like being in the middle of like preparing a thing that's like not done and you don't know if you're going to finish it on time and you don't have enough time and you're like I'm yeah like for me fear is just built into making things
2: this is design matters with Debbie Milman. On this episode, Debbie talks with Ira Glass about his career in radio and
1: podcasting and about the making of This American Life. Like, weirdly, the part of it that I like the least, and I feel like I can do it competently, but I've never been fond of it, is the actual performing on the radio part.
2: The interview was conducted in front of a live audience at the On Air Fest in Brooklyn, Sunday, March 8th, 2020.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. I discovered... A 1991 article in the Chicago Tribune titled, Take It Off, with the following description. After deciding to shed his long hair look, a brave dude tries a variety of cuts on the way up. I'd like to show you this image from the paper and ask if it is indeed you, the, the brave dude.
1: Yes. <laughs> I can confirm Sh- that that is me. Share
0: share the backstory with us if you can, just for a, a few minutes.
1: Um, it was a really long time ago, and for a while I had a uh, ponytail, which at the time seemed cool.
0: So so that went up there, or was that it didn't
1: one look up- like that? It was it was longer than that. Very Steven Seagal? It wasn't quite so Steven Seagal. It was a little messier. It's not a very dramatic story, but I. Some point I decided I just wanted to change how I looked because um, I wanted to change my life at that point. There's some old saying that uh, When a woman cuts her hair, she changes her life. Really? I heard it in a movie anyway, and uh, I didn't know the saying at the time, but but it was true and then I somehow like somebody knew somebody who uh, Who's like oh, we could take a pictures of that for? The newspaper something that had never happened to me before. I had never been photographed for a newspaper. Um, At the time, I was a uh, freelance reporter for NPR. And I thought, okay, that'll be a new experience. Okay, I'll try that. And that's how it ended up in the paper. It's it's not very dramatic, I'm afraid.
0: I I think the one right above you is rather dapper.
1: The one, my hair, that short hair like that, it did look like that for a while when I was working at NPR in Washington, like through my 20s. I started at NPR when I was 19. And um, did kind of all the low level jobs on sort of like, on all things considered a morning edition. But I looked very, very young. And I was younger than most of the staff. Uh, and so in my early 20s, I, I just thought like I need to figure out a tactic to, to seem like an adult. And, um, and so I wore a tie every day. And um, it sort of worked. Like I looked so young for so long. When I, I remember when I was in my early 30s. Um, I was, I was reporting in Lincoln Park High School and uh, I would get stopped for a hall pass. Like, uh, i have to you know I'm an adult, so.
0: You've said that you don't like interviewing famous people, that mostly because they arrive at an interview with a mask that might be hard to penetrate. When that happens, do you have any surefire way to get them to lower the mask?
1: I mean, honestly, I've interviewed so few famous people that I haven't really had to think my way through that problem. Um, I know you interview lots of famous people. I mean, I think that that in general, finding an anecdote or a way in that people haven't talked about before, for example, an article from 1991 (laughs) that a person hasn't thought about in a long time. (laughs) Totally, um, I respect the technique. And you know, and then it just—I I don't know. It's just I think I think the people who, who are so good at that, you know, Terry Gross or I, there's a print reporter in in Los Angeles for the who used to write a lot for the LA Times, but also for Entertainment Weekly and stuff named Margie on She and I used to talk about this because she would be, interview like Nicole Kidman and people like that, and i would just be like, "What do you do?" And she would tell a lot of stories about herself, like that would relate to things inside them, and were just enormously empathetic as a person, and and they would just get lost in a conversation with her as lost as somebody can get who's in that kind of position. And, uh, and she would get all sorts of things from them that were very personal um, and very real. Um, I, think, I think in general, like I mean, I said this a million times, but an interview is a party that you are throwing. And if, and, and if you are um, a three-dimensional person, it gives the other person the opportunity to be a three-dimensional person back. And so so that's just an enormously powerful force. I remember when I was interviewed by Mark Maron for the WTF podcast. He is so emotionally present and so bare that you just feel like you have to rise to the occasion as the interviewee.
0: You were born in Baltimore. You recently had a birthday. Happy birthday. Sure. Your parents met at a swimming pool. They met at a swimming pool when they were teenagers. They were married for nearly 50 years. Yeah. Um, your mom was a clinical psychologist. Your dad started out as a radio announcer, but then eventually became a certified public accountant. Have you heard any of his early radio announcements?
1: I have. Yeah, yeah. He stopped being on the radio when he was in his early 20s. Like He did it in college and when he was in the army as well. And then, uh, and then he's, he gave it up, actually, when my mom became pregnant with me. And I didn't really know about that part of his life, like, when I went into radio. Like, I think it's, like, one of those things that had been mentioned, but it wasn't, like, a part of his identity that was ever discussed. And, uh, and I have heard the recordings. And, he, and in fact, we've done a, we did a story uh, on a Father's Day episode where I played some of the recordings and talked to him about it. He's very um, smooth. And, uh, like, he's very much, like, it's the 50s when he's doing this. Like, I'm old. And he's DJ. He's a 1950s-era DJ. Uh, and doing the ads and doing the news, and decent—a much better voice than mine, actually—and totally solid. For me, hearing the recordings, the thing about it that was emotional was hearing him do something that I know so well, and hearing him be so much younger than me doing it, and and not as—I mean, I hope this isn't a hurtful thing to say, but like not as good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like hearing him read like really bad ad copy and having to perform it as if he's really saying the words and meaning it and knowing exactly what that's like to have a script in front of you, but try to talk as if it's a thing you're really saying and hearing him like sometimes really pulling it off, but sometimes not totally. I don't know, it's just like, it's a different way in on your own parents.
0: Your sister, Randy, has described you as a nosy introvert. And st- yes. believe- noisy.
1: noisy, 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 but noisy. Yeah, but ah. nosy is also true. Nosy ah. is very much. Yeah, uh, no. see,
0: I thought noisy was nosy was actually really cool because that would make sense given your curiosity. But I, I misread it. It's noisy. Noisy. No,
1: like, but nosy is just just as true for sure. <laughs> very nosy introvert. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Noisy introvert is this category that that Randy came up with to describe herself where, where uh, she can be very social, but actually she prefers to be alone. And then, when she said it, I realized, like, oh, I have. It's like a, so, I know so many people like that, especially, I think, uh, writers. Um, so many writers, I think, have the personality type of... Like, they can manage in a social setting, and they're okay for a couple of hours, but really, where they'd rather be is alone. Um, and, and that's a lot of my personality, too.
0: When my fiancé, Roxanne, and I first got together, Um, she's very quiet and can be very shy, and I'm not. And I would want to try to get more out of her, um, to really understand her emotionality and that inner dialogue. And I remember talking to my therapist about it and saying, you know, she's such a good writer and she talks so much about her emotions as she, while she's writing and she very sort of abruptly said, that's why she's a writer.
1: Hmm. Yeah. so it, it really yeah. helped
0: me understand the different ways that people prefer to communicate
1: yes yeah what I'm very aware s- of those tendencies in myself
0: you sound that like that is something that is concerning to you
1: um what a therapist like response <laughs> um. <laughs> couldn't help myself <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, no, I, I understand the ways in which in public um, I'm able to do things that can be harder for me uh, in, in a personal relationship, for sure.
0: You wanted to be both an astronaut and a magician when you were a kid. Yes. But both your parents grew up really poor and they wanted you to be a doctor.
1: Yes. I wouldn't um, say poor, but they were, like, they were, they were people without a lot, a lot of spare money, for sure. Yeah.
0: Um, I believe you were quite a talented amateur magician, and became well known in your neighborhood for being able to make a very credible Snoopy out of balloons.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. I, I gigged as a as a kid magician when I was a when I was a teenager and did children's parties and uh, did magic tricks. I have to say, I'm I'm like, in terms of just sheer craft, I'm not very good. Oh, really? Uh, Cause but I uh, was
0: kind of hoping that maybe. Oh, I can totally do balloons still.
1: Yeah. One. Would yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs>
0: Thank you, there's a variety of colors and-
1: Oh, wait, but these are- No,
0: those are the kind for um, balloons, for mm-hmm. animals. you right, to, to put microphone? it down.
1: Hold on, I'll, I'll put it down.
0: How good is this, okay? Let's just acknowledge that this is a classic Radio moment.
1: These are not the right kind of... What you need are uh, ones that are, like, long and thin. Aren't those
0: long and thin?
1: No, these are actually sort of stubby. Um, You need, like, a 245 or a 260, which means two inches long, two inches wide and 45 inches long, or 260. My my point is made. But I have my bag. If somebody could grab my bag from back there.
0: We did not plan this.
1: Like, I do carry around usually a couple of balloons because sometimes you're in... Sometimes you're in a situation, a reporting situation or just you're with a friend's kid and, and it's appropriate to pull out an animal balloon. I could make a coin disappear while we wait for the bag.
0: Really? I hear, I hear things happening back there. So can you still make a Snoopy? That's
1: my bag. I could make a Snoopy, yeah. Uh, sure, for sure I could. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Oh my. This has been a weird afternoon.
0: (laughs) I take that as a compliment. Oh, wow. Okay,
1: Snoopy, not a poodle, but a Snoopy. Yeah. Okay, hold on.
0: Please can someone tape this videotape?
1: It's funny, like I don't buy these balloons very often. I can feel that this one's kind of old, so it actually might pop. So just a warning. In the game. Now doing the body and the back legs. This is actually the part that sort of every animal you make out of balloons. I learned this from a book called Roger's Rubber Arc, Can you see it Snoopy? Oh,
0: Snoopy. <laughs> <clears throat> Snoopy. My very own Snoopy made by Ira Glass. <laughs> 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 <wha, wha. You mean wah 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 wah? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the rest of our interview like that. <laughs> So, The Peanuts Treasury was one of your favorite books growing up, but yes. you've stated that it defined the emotional climate of your elementary years.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. So, I very in what much, way? In I what connected very strongly with, uh, with Charlie Brown. Um, and I think, like, one of the things, I mean, I've written about this, but, like, I think one of the things that's interesting about Peanuts is that it was art that's for kids, and yet it's so uh, movingly sad. And uh, I, like I, like a lot of kids, and a lot of people who I've gotten to know as an adult, um, just connected to that sadness.
0: To the melancholy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, and it's funny, like, I don't remember ever laughing at Peanuts. Like, to me, it, it never seemed funny. It just seemed very real. And, uh, and I remember my mom, I, I identified so strongly, I remember my mom saying to me, you're not Charlie Brown. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Did
0: that Did that surprise you?
1: That I wasn't Charlie Brown. I mean, it. I mean, I, It isn't how I saw myself. Like I saw myself as very much like Charlie Brown. Um, I mean, like I, I. had friends and stuff, and. Uh, but. Uh, but yeah, there's something about the aloneness of that character that, that I connected to.
0: How do you think Charlie Brown grew up?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Like, who would he be?
0: I think he would be Chris Ware.
1: Oh, it's so funny because I know Chris Ware. Um, Chris Ware is this cartoonist who does these very melancholic comic strips and then became kind of an expert on Charles Schultz and uh, has written about him. And In fact, has visited his um, house and met his widow. I know, because I know Chris. And yeah, like like Chris... But interestingly, like Chris, while, while he has the part of him that is very much um, connected to Charlie Brown and is just as melancholic as that... Have you met him? Have you interviewed him? Yes. Yeah, like I feel like actually in real life, he's so much better put together and more successful and, you know, just invented this aesthetic for doing comic stories, but just also like, you know, is a completely successful like parent and husband, and is just a functioning adult who is who is actually much sturdier, um, you know, very sturdy, and ha- happier, I think, than, than his public persona, though I think it would make him wince to hear me say that. Yes, I think so. Yeah.
0: You loved to put on plays and shows when you were a kid, and you made these plays with your siblings. Um, I understand you knew every line and joke from the play The Fiddler on the Roof.
1: Yes, yeah, my mom took us to plays when I was a kid and and it's it's funny in retrospect of only I only came to understand this that like I think that, I think that those old Broadway musicals like I grew up in the 60s and early 70s and I didn't listen to rock music like I listened to like the musicals and those were the records that we had in the house and my mom would take us to shows uh Growing up in Baltimore County and uh, and so there's a lot of Jews in Baltimore County And so Fiddler on the Roof would come through like every year or two And so I remember seeing it so many times as a kid and then I stopped seeing it when I was 18 I hadn't you know just like didn't see it I was a grown person and then a couple of years ago I went and saw a production on Broadway Not the Yiddish one that's up now, but there was one in English and I went with a friend and I, honestly, like I realized, like I knew every single line before it was said, like people would come on with like tertiary roles and I would know what they were going to say before they said it. I had seen it so many times and it imprinted itself so hard. And and I think like in retrospect, after I started making This American Life, like there came a point where I realized that the aesthetics of Fiddler on the Roof, where like if you've seen it, like it starts off as a comedy and it's really about uh, you know a father with these three girls and wants to get them married off and there's the matchmaker who's going to fix them up and they don't want her to fix her up with the, like the wrong person and. Like and uh, there's a whole like early scene where like he's he, where he's going to promise his uh, oldest daughter to the butcher, and he's very very rich, so he wants that as a dad. And the but but uh, or rather, the butcher wants to marry his oldest daughter, but he thinks the butcher wants to buy his milk cow, and they have a conversation where they don't understand. You know, he thinks she's he wants to buy the milk cow, and the butcher wants to marry his daughter. So it's like a comedy at first, and then um, as it goes on, what it's about are two things. One, each of the daughters basically does something that is just different than the way the, fa- the parents think it should be done. The first daughter does one thing and another thing. Finally, the third daughter wants to marry a non-Jew, and he has to disown her. Um, so it's really about this thing that's so fundamentally profound about, uh, like really one of the most profound things about, like what do you do as a parent when your children do something that you don't agree with or approve of? And the girls do it sort of increasingly uh, uh, extreme things and then the other thing that it's about as it goes on is the Jews getting expelled from Russia and the pogroms and and just uh, you know being made into a people who are in diaspora always um, and, and but that structure of like pulling you in with comedy at the beginning and um, and then gradually it gets more and more serious and, uh, and in fact by the end is quite quite sad just that structure I think that that you know, when I was coming up in my 20s and working at NPR in Washington, and I was a production assistant and associate producer, and all those kind of like support jobs doing stories and just trying to invent a way to do radio, I feel like I feel like once I understood the basics of how to do journalism, there was a feeling I was looking for in the stories that I wouldn't have named. Like I didn't name to myself, but I just like I just wanted to feel like more. And at some point, I just started to make stories that had exactly the structure of *Fedor on the Roof*, where they would be kind of funny at the beginning and pull you in with like something very light, and then you get invested in the characters, and then it gets more and more serious, and turns out to be about a bigger something. And obviously, this is like a structure lots of people use, and lots of lots of different sorts of uh, storytelling. Uh, I, you know the and and while i was doing it i didn't don't think i had like a conscious thought that, that that that's what i was doing i was just like i just have a drive to make journalism have this feeling that i know a piece of work can have but in retrospect i do think that's what it's about it's about it's about that feeling that i would get from those those old musicals
0: you cried throughout the entire revival when you saw it
1: yes yeah yeah i've talked about this publicly um you're not just intuiting that <laughs> from the look of my face. Yes, um, yes, I did for a couple of reasons. Like one, um, uh, you know, I, it was my mom who would take me to those shows, and my mom died. Now I don't know, two thousand three, two thousand four, like whatever. I, now I can't even. Two thousand three. Two thousand three. You know. Thank you. You know, and just like the thought, I think she would be so pleased that I would have gone to Fiddler on the Roof on my own, you know, without her taking me. And also that just, I would go you know, to, I live in New York City now, like we moved our show to New York uh, to do television years ago and then quit TV and sort of we all stayed here. And so I go to tons and tons of shows. And I think that, you know, like when you're a parent, I think you just kind of throw a lot of stuff at your kids that you like, hoping that it would be meaningful to them. I think it would mean something to her that, that thing that meant so much to her would mean so much to me. But that also, like, we've put on shows, you know, we've done, you know, we've worked with some people who make musicals with Bobby Lopez, who did Book of Mormon and with Lin-Manuel Miranda before he did before, Hamilton. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like, and just, you know, just that that of been in that world, um, I think would be very moving to my mom. Your... Um
0: the American Life producer, Julie Snyder, has said that you love performing on stage in a way that is sincere and mystifying, and I'm wondering <laughs> if that all comes from that early experience of Fiddler.
1: Uh, maybe. Like, I, there's something about like me, like the fact that I would just decide to go on stage, um, Just, I think that there was just something in me as a person, like, like in other ways, there are other things in my personality that just seem like they don't combine with that. Like the fact that like I started doing magic on stage, because literally, like I knew nothing about it. I went to the Baltimore County Public Library on Liberty Road and took out books on magic. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to do that. And then just like took out ads in, in the Baltimore Jewish Times. Just like, okay, I'm, you know, like $5, you know, pay me $5 and I'll come do magic tricks at your kid's birthday. Like, I didn't know anybody who had done magic. Like, I just literally just, just you know, at the age of 11, just was like, oh, I could do that. You know, and it's just a very similar impulse that got me my own radio show. like, oh, I can, I think I can do that. And so, I think, so, yeah.
0: What was it about magic that was so intriguing to you? Was it going from sort of one state of reality to another?
1: I think all of us who came to love magic, the actual mechanics of it are just kind of cool. I don't, it's not not in a way more sophisticated than that. And then the fact that it also was a way to be funny in front of a group of people because I wasn't a very skilled magician, but I could hold a room. Of children. <laughs> you know what I mean? Very confident about that. Like I could be very, I can connect with them and I could tell a story and I could be very funny. And uh, somehow I just felt like I would be able to do that. You know, like there's, there's, it, it combined a bunch of things that I liked in the same way that doing the radio combines a bunch of things that I like. Like I like interviewing people, you know, I just actually enjoy it. And I, and I'm nosy. You know, like, I, I like figuring things out and, and I love the editing part of it. And, and, and like, weirdly, the part of it that I like the least, and in fact, sort of, I, don't, I feel like I can do it competently, but I've never been fond of it, is the actual performing on the radio part. Um, it always feels to me like, at that point, like I have a script. And if I perform the script perfectly, it'll sound like I'm talking. And no one, and like the plot points will hit properly Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the thing will just feel effortless. But there's so many times where I don't, you know, where I feel like just tense and I can feel that it just feels a little bit fake and a little bit off and it doesn't hit quite as well. So it's sort of like one of those games you get into where if you do it perfectly, nobody notices and it just sells. And then there's all these ways for it to go badly.
0: Have you always been this hard on yourself?
1: Well, I used to not be as skilled at it, and so it was harder. Like, it, like I was really not. It's, it's funny, when I give speeches now, often I'll play things from, like, you know, not even the first or second year. Like, the eighth year I was doing radio, and it's horrible.
0: You've actually said that it took you longer than anyone you know in radio, and you know a lot of people in radio, to actually get to finally be good. It took you longer than anyone else. Yes, and I still,
1: in the years since I've said that, I have still never met anybody who took like a decade to get decent. In fact, I feel so aware when we've hired like interns and production fellows on our show, like I wouldn't have been able to get an internship on my own show (laughs) when I was in my 20s. Like I was not good enough.
0: Why do you think you kept persevering? What kept you trying for eight years? That's a long time.
1: Yeah, I know. Um, there was something about it that attracted me to it and, and it, it did have to do with like the interviewing and the editing, like those parts, like I wasn't like, it, I was a very awkward interviewer at first, but I could get material out of people. I could get people to say stuff and I could figure stuff out about material, about people, um, and have m- emotional moments on tape with people, um, in a way that, that was very exciting to me. And so I felt like I was able to get certain stuff on tape, even though I was so, like, stammery and awkward. And then on the editing part, just for whatever reason, from the moment I started working at NPR, as soon as, like, I, I, as soon as they showed me how to use a real... In fact, I knew how to use a real-to-real tape recorder before then. I, I was doing college radio. But as soon as I was, like, editing real interviews, like, I just had a, just an instinctive feeling for how to do it. And so there was a part of it that just came so easily, and I felt so confident in and that sort of carried the rest that I just felt like I just I just felt like this could go somewhere and I couldn't tell where and I and I had no I had nothing else I wanted to do and and I wasn't ambitious enough or didn't think enough of myself to want to be like a filmmaker or like a real writer you know what I mean like I wasn't I didn't have a good enough self image to to aspire to something like that but the notion of like being, I don't know, just quietly like doing little stories and sitting in an edit room, like that seemed doable.
0: Has your self image changed at all?
1: I mean, it's weird. The the like a person's in my experience, like it has for sure. Um, but the the like a bad self image <laughs> doesn't go away. In my experience, you just kind of like pile other things you learn about yourself on top of it. And so, like, of course, now I'm, like, enormously confident as, like, somebody making radio stories and running a business and all those things.
0: What but, aren't you confident about?
1: I mean, the... the, the, the um, what am I not confident about? I mean, I'm often, like, having to think my way through delicate, you know, like, management things and dealing with people, but that's normal. Um, I think for anybody who's a boss of lots of people... Um, but that always takes thought. And then, I don't know, I think I, th- I think I would have pictured, like having done so many shows and having done a show for so long, somehow it would change some essential part of my picture of myself at my core. And I don't think it has. Like I don't, I don't know. Like there's something um, where I still think like, not, I don't know, it, uh, where, where I still, I don't know, just don't think that much of it all if that makes sense. I well, feel
0: what do you, what, what's the it? You don't think that much of it all. Like is that you or your work or the combination?
1: I mean, I would say like no, I feel like the work speaks for itself. I feel very confident about the work. But it's it's like it I'm not a person who is able to turn that into like building up like a sense of like oh, I'm really awesome, you know. But I feel like that's okay. I feel like I don't think I need that and and people who do feel that way sometimes just seem ridiculous though though I do I do know people who have like a healthy sense of like you know self confidence and whatever
0: I think those are the people that are really well parented <laughs> not that I want to make any assumptions about how you were parented yeah but I do find that people that come from happier families tend to feel just okay about themselves. That is something I've never felt, ever. Never once a day in my life. So I'm really curious about how people get to that place.
1: Yeah. Do you think people can go from one to the other? from Ping-pong of...
0: back and forth, or to evolve to a place where they feel better about themselves?
1: To evolve to a place where they feel better about themselves. Oh, yes. Because, do, you do Yes, I do. Do you?
0: I definitely feel better than where I started, but where I started was particularly grim.
1: But do you feel like that old personality, um, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on the the name of the writer, the super famous writer who says like where she's talking about this, she talks about It's sort of like in a down moment, it's like a, it's like a ghost that can tap you on the shoulder. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You do feel that? Absolutely. Yeah. You too? Oh, of course. Yeah.
0: What do you do when you feel like an interview isn't going well?
1: Oh, I I do a million things. Oh my God, so many things. Give me like two or three. I mean, it's so situational. Like, I mean, there are different ways an interview can go badly, but the most common one is the person just is not in touch with their feelings and their feelings about the experience you're trying to get them to talk about. And then you just have to try to bait them into remembering what the experience was. And so one of the tricks to do it is to just say like, okay, so if I was in this situation, I think I would feel this. Like, what was this like for you? Like, sometimes you just have to suggest your way into it. Um, What else? Like a lot of it is so situational of trying to like nudge them on this point or that point or this point or that point.
0: You kill a lot of shows that you've killed from what I understand, a lot of stories, um, but three quarters, is that, is that right?
1: We don't kill three quarters... Well, it depends on what stage you're talking about. Like, like we look into a lot of stuff and then don't go ahead with it because it's clear, like, it can't be done well or the people aren't good talkers or we won't be able to get the information we want. Like, that's a lot. But of the stuff that we actually start to produce where people report things out and get interviews on tape and fly around, I would say we kill easily a fourth and maybe it's more like a half.
0: And does that often involve... The people that you feel like you can't get something from that aren't really self-reflective or
1: yes yeah like like often when somebody pitches a story we'll say back this person has to be able to talk about this part of it in an interesting way and if they can't it might be a story but it's not a radio story like radio is so peculiarly dependent on the quotes you know like, like you can make a story about that person but it shouldn't be a radio story if they can't actually talk about it and so um and you know I mean, I've joked about this a lot on stage of just like, there's such a, you know, like there's just a class of people who something amazing happens to them and they can't talk about it. And I just feel like, you know, we can't like, we can't, it's hard to make a story with them. One of the tricks we do often is if they have a significant other in their life, we'll go to that person. Cause sometimes that person is like a wonderful talker, um, a partner or, um, a brother, or sister. Um, and so, so sometimes you'll hear, like, you can, intru- you can introduce a second character to the story who can carry the emotion of it. Um, and there's some really beautiful stories, actually, we've done that way, where the main character isn't carrying the feeling of it, so they'll tell the plot, and they'll be there on stage, and you have a sense of them, but then somebody else will, will t- say, oh, no, they were really feeling this and that.
0: You mentioned your interview with Mark Maron just a little while ago, and you talked about... His ability to sit in front of a microphone in a way that had a lot of feeling and a lot of heart. Um, And you go on to state that the easiest, most fulfilling, most intimate conversations of your day are the ones that happen in front of a microphone.
1: Well, many days. So, like, I have to say, like, in my personal life now, you know, Things I have regularly, better. yeah, Yeah, actually, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, actually, yeah, no, in my personal life, of, uh, like, of course I'm having conversations that are as intimate as that.
0: You told Mark that he exposed himself more in the 10 minutes that you were on the air with him than you had exposed of yourself in a year. And I'm wondering if...
1: I said that during his podcast? Yeah. Wow. He did such a good job. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That was a wonderful interview. You really, you guys had a lot of fun together. Yeah. Um, But I'm wondering, do you feel like you give more intimacy to the show than you do to others or have in the past?
1: I mean, my mom was a therapist, right? And uh, my sisters and I used to joke about what her therapy sessions must be like, like how she would like turn on active listening. And we had a hand gesture that we did for active listening, which was like just put my hands around my ears and bob my head from side to side and um you know like in 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 an hour long or two hour long radio interview in a wherever it is like it's easy to be really focused on another person with a goal so that kind of intimacy it's it's a situation that's set up for that kind of intimacy you know versus you know you come home and people have different needs from each other or just whatever. People come into like a home situation with whatever it is they need and have to kind of collide and figure out, you know, what they're going to talk about and how they're going to talk about it. And, you know, like in a personal relationship, the things you're stressed out on are way more present than in an interview. You know, I feel like in a good day, if I see uh, the person I love, like, yeah, it's just as intimate, of course, but that's pretty new or recent, um, lately anyway. But I will say it's much easier in a, in a radio situation, like it always was. And, and it's funny, like, I think that, that, uh, yeah, it was just always very much easier in a, in a radio situation. And I had to learn it more in a personal situation.
0: How did you go about learning that?
1: Practice. Being, being, uh, being told like, no, not like that.
0: How has the idea of what an American life means changed in the 25 years you've been doing this American Life?
1: You mean you mean the sh- has has the show changed or how no. how, how, has how, life is, in how is how how is
0: actually the what an American life is? How do you feel like that has changed over the time that you've had the show?
1: I mean, I think that uh, like as everyone hearing our voices knows, like it's just a much more Divided country, you know, I don't know. I feel like everything I have to say about this is everything that everybody knows that that we live in a moment where every bit of reality is contested into two stories, created by two different teams. You know, there's my team, which is the 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 mainstream news team. uh, And there's the right wing media team. And each one has its own narrative of every single event. And and many cultural things as well. And I think that'll be with us for the rest of our lives.
0: How do you combat fake news now? Or the notion of what fake news is?
1: I mean, it's been interesting trying to game out what would be valuable to do. And so we have a bunch of different strategies on our show. And sometimes we'll just do origin stories, like here's how this became an issue, and here's how it became to be thought of that way. We'll do that sometimes. Um, another thing we'll do is sometimes we'll just feel like, oh, this is in the news, but people don't really, the emotional fact of it isn't out there. So for example, we did a show a couple months ago on the remain in Mexico policy. And I feel like most informed news people know that like the Trump administration has done big changes in immigration policy. And especially in the last year, uh, this thing that's nicknamed remain in Mexico. And, but I think like, because stories came out sort of individually, the emotional fact of what it means, which is... Uh, over 50,000 really depending how you count it, more like 70,000 people who, who are seeking asylum who in previous years we would have let into the United States after a simple screening and said, if you want asylum, basically, okay, wait here, here's your court date, you know, show up in court on this date, they would have waited inside the United States and now they're sent back across the border to Mexico. But what that's meant is tens of thousands of people right across the border in these would amount to refugee camps without any support from a governmental organization. So you have people living in tent camps, you have people getting kidnapped. And so we did a series of stories that start off at one of the tent camps, but also include somebody who met a reporter right after he was told, okay, go back to Mexico, and he told the reporter the thing I'm really scared about is getting kidnapped and then sure enough within hours he was kidnapped and uh, and the reporter had recordings that she made with the uh, with the guy's sister of the cartel negotiating for his release and it was, it was interesting It was like a, it's like McDonald's it's like a volume business like they start off asking I can't remember if it was $15,000 and they just steadily realized oh this person doesn't get any money so finally I think they get him out for like under a $1,000 uh, but it takes days and uh you know, and we also and also part of that were stories with the um, customs agents who are quitting over it. Uh, some of them and who just feel like, oh, sending people back to Mexico is actually a violation of U.S. law because we're sending people back into the situation where they can be uh, killed, kidnapped, tortured, and um, and I feel like again, all of these things are sort of in the news, but uh, without the emotional weight that you can get to through a properly told narrative where you meet the people and you feel something for them and. Um, so we'll do something like that, or we did that with, um, we went to Hong Kong, where I feel like, again, a lot of people you see protest in Hong Kong, but we actually like spend time and meet the people in the early 20s who are actually protesting, and they're talking very movingly about how they think, like, no, they're going to lose. Like, China is not going to give them what they want, but they feel like they have to be out there. And I just feel like there were things that weren't in... The excellent news coverage that I was hearing on NPR and reading in the New York Times and Washington Post and other places, like there's just a place for narrative in some of those things to actually make something that we all hear about feel more feel more real, and 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 so you can have not just like a, a, an idea of it in your head, but you can feel a thing for actual people. I mean, this is very traditional sort of journalism, but something that radio is p- particularly good for. Um, and, then, and then what else do we do? Like sometimes we'll just kind of notice a thought or a feeling or a mood or something that we feel like we want to respond to or capture or, or um, deal with. Sometimes we'll do something where we'll try to move to the level of fact. Like one of the shows, we did these two shows that I feel very proud of, it didn't get much attention, but like where early on in the Trump administration, uh, you know, there's this, two, there's this fight about immigration policy where it's sort of like, does allowing in low-wage immigrants make a, for a better country or a worse country. Just to, And we're just like, okay, let's leave aside the national debate. Let's just go to one town that got a ton of people coming in and look at how it would affect this town. And we chose a town, Jeff Sessions was the president, what had been like the sort of the, the spokesman for the anti-immigration political force before President Trump and then was his, obviously, uh, like one of the top people in his administration making it happen along with Stephen Miller, of course. And, um, and, and we thought, like, why does Jeff Sessions believe this? And Jeff Sessions would talk about these towns in Alabama where uh, people were coming from Mexico to work in the chicken plants, the chicken processing plants. And we're like, great, let's go to the number one town like that. So we, so we found a town which had been a completely all-white town, totally, totally you know, 98% white, and then uh, over the course of like a very fast period, became depending on how you measure the numbers, either a third or a fourth uh, Latino. And we're just like, what did it do to this town? Did it drive down wages? Did it, you know, did you know, like, what did it do? To, you just what, what did it do to people's taxes? What did it do to schools? What did it do? To, you just like all the things people talk about, and hired economists to do a study of what did it do to people's wages? You know, and just like and just try to answer it in this one place. And and I feel like being able to take this sort of like national fight and turn it into like a, wait, let's go to a place where we can actually measure and say like kind of yes or no, that seems like something nobody's doing. Or people do, but like it's hard to do, it took months. Um, And and, uh, and, and we do it. I'm sorry, that was such a long answer. I'm so sorry, with so many examples.
0: I know, it's wonderful. I was actually sitting here trying to make one of those split decisions do I continue with this? I know, or do I know, we... I
1: know. I know that decision so well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, if that's, I, if that's I the were you, but if I were you, radio, the yes. follow-up would be right on the top. You see, but I feel like I've laid out all this data. So for me as an interviewer, the next move would be to, to be like, well, what do you, what, so what's the idea that comes out of that? Like, what's your theory that comes out of that? Like, well, does then? it work? Does it work? Ask me if it works.
0: No, I don't know. I I, I know it doesn't. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But what do you think? It doesn't. <laughs> Why not?
1: Or I don't know. It works to the degree like something like that works. I feel like we're in a situation where, like, weirdly, podcasts I feel like are a little less coded as product of uh, the mainstream media. I feel like we have a lot of conservative listeners. I feel like it's it, weirdly like the, the like being on NPR feels very much coded as being part of the liberal media, but being a podcast. And lots of people don't know us as an NPR show. They just know us as a podcast. In fact, right now, our podcast audience is something like 3.1 million people a week, and our radio audience is 2.2 million. We're a bigger podcast than we are a radio show. Because of that, I feel like we slip under the radar in a certain way with a certain number of people. Um, I remember remember, um, when Zoe Chase uh, was doing, uh, back in... uh, in the lead-up to the last presidential election. Zoe Chase, one of our producers, did a ton of reporting on, on uh, people in the Republican Party uh, who loved President Trump, and, um, and people in the party who were just noticing the changes in the party and, and not feeling great about it, but also people who were feeling great about it. And um, when she went to the deplorable ball in Washington, uh, the self-named deplorables who sort of claimed that they, um, they trolled the president into office, you know, somebody came over to her being like, oh, I love your coverage, you know, and um, I feel like there's a certain number of people who, you know, who don't identify us as part of, of or I don't know, It's I don't even know what I'm talking about. But it seems like in some ways, sometimes we, we fly under the radar that way.
0: Do your radio listeners... To
1: some small degree.
0: Well, do, your, do the radio listeners respond and engage with you and the show in a different way than the podcast listeners?
1: No. I don't know. No, I can't tell who's who.
0: It would be interesting...
1: The radio listeners listeners are, are as a group, older. Because the public radio audience tends to be older than the podcast audience. But I don't have anything smart to say about that.
0: This American Life won a Peabody Award in the very first year of broadcasting. Which is really remarkable. Um, You've won every major award there is to win in radio. You have won another award here today. Yeah, you've stated the following, Ira, and I was really curious about this, and this gets back to what we were talking to talking about a little bit before about self esteem, but this is really about the show. And you've said, honestly, making radio is still hard. I have a really hard I have really hard weeks on the show where I'm really frightened and really struggling to make the show good. Yes. And in a recent interview in The Guardian, you stated that you feel scared all the time.
1: Well, feeling scared all the time is normal for a broadcaster, right? No. Really?
0: I don't think so. I, I, I mean, wow. Maybe, maybe they're just not being honest with me, but not every broadcaster I know is scared all the time,
1: but it, like you don't know if the thing's going to be any good. you're in the I don't know. It's like being in the middle of like preparing a thing that's like not done, and you don't know if you're going to finish it on time and you don't have enough time and you're like, I'm yeah, like for me, fear is just built into making things.
0: but what about your track record? Do you feel like there's
1: I feel confident we'll get it done as well as it can be done by us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean if, if that's what keeps that's you like, as, as good as you are, like,
0: then so be it.
1: Keith Moon once I the mean, drummer the drummer of the Who once said, like I am the greatest Keith Moon style drummer in the world. I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's that's so exactly how I feel. Like I feel like like yeah. Like I'm leaving here to go to work. Like, but you, what loved, is it? you
0: love that though. That's not I a... do
1: not love that. But we no? have a pledge. No, but we have a pledge do you drive do to so get well, i I'm, I'm on a deadline. Like we have a new show next week, but also it would be good if we got a, a pledge show out this week rather than waiting a week. And so like it's what is it, five thirty, six o'clock on a Sunday night. I'm gonna leave here and then go work on the pledge show. So, and how
0: will you feel while you're working on it? Will you be wishing you were somewhere else? Will you be happy that you're there?
1: I will be absolutely wishing I was not there. Yeah, like, I would much Where would you rather,
0: rather
1: be? I would rather be with my girlfriend, getting dinner and hanging out.
0: How has it been back in the dating world?
1: Um, it's been much better than being in um, an unhappy marriage where we were trying to make it work and, and trying our best and not succeeding.
0: How has that changed your worldview now? Being, being in this different kind of relationship?
1: I mean, I just feel younger. I feel like better, in general, because of it.
0: I want to talk a little bit about Serial. Um, Your podcast Serial, not The Breakfast, um, which debuted in 2015, is the single most popular podcast ever made. Yes. It has been downloaded over 400 million times and it established an ongoing podcast world record. It also has won every major award for broadcasting, including the Edward R. Murrow and the first ever Peabody for a podcast. Um, is it true that you didn't think you were starting anything big with Serial?
1: Yes. How yeah. come? What was, tell- I mean, like it, this is basically an idea that Sarah Koenig, the host, and Julie Snyder, the producer, who was the long-time producer, long-time senior producer at This American Life, like the way they saw it was, like I think it's like it's weird that this is like that this this is just 5 years ago but this was such a new idea the idea of like we didn't know if you could tell a true story for more than one episode and people would come back and hear the next episode like part of it was could we make a story that's that's reporting but instead of finishing it in 60 minutes like try to get people to come back next week and the week after and the week after which is why so much of it is built with the structure of TV because Julie loves TV and really understands TV. And she's like, let's build it like TV and structure out the story and the episodes and the hooks that pull you forward in the way that you would do for TV and see if you can get people to listen to a piece of investigative journalism uh, in the same way. And so that was so new. Like, honestly, we were just like, well, let's just try this. And I remember when, when they were working on it, Julie and Sarah would just say, like, well, who? would be at some, like, decision point in the thing. And they would just say, like, well, who? Who cares? Nobody's going to hear this thing. Like, and um, and our business goal was to make back enough, basically to get a, a large enough audience so that uh, the advertising that you know the underwriting that we could sell on it would cover the cost of it, which I think was three hundred thousand.
0: Mailchimp got a really good bargain. They did. that first season. They did. Iron Glass, you have done more to create this industry than anybody in the world. I know you hate that kind of stuff, but it needs to be said. Um, And I just want to thank you for making this all possible for all of us that have tried to follow in your footsteps. Ladies and gentlemen, Ira Glass.
2: Thanks for the nice interview. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.